You're listening to a teaching from Sundown Church. We hope you encounter God through our podcast and experience freedom in your life. We are going to uh, to jump in tonight uh, in, in back into James chapter 2, and I'll begin where I ended last time with, uh, with verse 14. This is, what does it profit, my brethren, though a man say he has faith and have not works, can faith save him? Well, again, when we, as we approach this, we recognize this, this question, can faith save him? It's, I wrote in my notes, this is truly an interesting question. The answer seems simple but profound, easy to comprehend but difficult to accept. Faith requires work. These are, these are, this is a truth that you just absolutely can't separate. But the question consistently is whose work? You know, my action, again, to turn and, and to sit in this chair is, is faith he gave me, but the fact that the chair, when, the minute my weight hits it, the chair goes to work. So in, in my list, I wrote, it's his work on our behalf. His truth to reveal sin, his revelation to introduce the Savior, his invitation to save, his faith as a gift to receive, his blood applied, his power to live. We know, we're not confused, that, that the one who's actually doing the work of salvation, the one who's doing the work of ministry, the one who's doing the work of miracles, the one who's doing the work of transformation, the one who's doing the work of redemption, the one who's doing the work of regeneration, no matter what we plug in there, is him. How does he go to work? Faith. So when we, when we get to that concept, we begin to understand the heart of James and recognize he's telling us something on a large scale and there's real danger if we don't take what James says verse after verse after verse and let him build continuity in it. Carving any one of them out if I, if I just started a conversation with somebody and said, can faith save? And that was, there's no context of it, then there would be a huge conversation depending on what people's history would be about that phrase. But he didn't give it to us in isolation. He gave it to us in context. So let's go to verse 15. And this is where, uh, where we'll start. If a brother or sister be naked, look away. That's what it says there. <laughs> Yeah, don't stare. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what does it profit? So he's saying if somebody comes to you in extreme need and you and you speak this these good words to them and you tell them that, the, you know, to be warm and to be filled, and you, and you share those things, but you didn't even meet the most basic needs of clothing them and feeding them, what has it profited? Now, again, unfortunately, we know James is dealing with very, very real things, and it's still very real today. Because we want to offer a grand solution to people's stories and people's issues and people's questions. 
But the reality of all of these stories, each of these stories, is rarely will we tell somebody something that they can so absolutely consume that there's, no, that there's nothing necessary that we don't have to follow up and do and, and to continue to do. I mean, and, and James is making a good point. Why would we say to somebody who is coming to us in such dire need and say, well, you know, we, we'll pray for you, be warm and filled, and we send them out in the same condition in which they came. But you know that's become the, that's become the, 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 the voice of the Christian church. I will offer you lofty answers. But the lofty answer needs to be met by the faith that I not only hear you and want to encourage you, but the Father who lives in me, the, the same one by whose faith I'm, I'm functioning, has something for you bigger than just my lofty words. Paul, again, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 when he says, didn't come to you with just the enticing words of men. I didn't just tell you things that you needed to hear. But, we, but I came to you in great demonstrations of power and spirit. So what does the demonstration in this verse look like? What does the demonstration of spirit and power look like? It looks like not only do I tell you to, to be warm and to be filled, but that great work and that great demonstration of power is I not only tell you that, I, you, you come here and you leave transformed. That which was bothering you has been dealt with. Again, I don't want to make too much of this because I, sometimes when we tell these stories, we elevate Satan too much in the story, and I, I don't want to elevate him at all. But for, we, we went, for those of us who were here for Nita to, to get up on Sunday morning and come down the aisle and tell me, she said, you know, for the last three weeks, been sick on Sunday morning. She said, I'm under attack. She said, that, you know, this morning she had to kind of press through to, to get here. But she said, I've been under attack. And I said, well, are you, are, you, are you tired of it? Are you ready to get rid of it? Yes. So we stand here. And, and I pray that that spirit of infirmity in the name of Jesus would be bound and removed and removed from this story and cast to the dry places to await judgment because it has nothing left in this story. I don't want her to have to leave here and say, well, you know, I hope you get to feeling better to give her good words because the faith that would let me say, I hope you feel better that faith in the one that I trust also gives me the authority, his authority delegated to me as a child of God, as the joint heir to be able to say to that spirit, be bound in the name of Jesus and get out. So not only does she not leave with good encouraging words, she leaves with the need met because that's what faith does. And again, to be able, as I was talking about last night at the Bible study in Lubbock, and, and we said it a little bit on, on Sunday night with, with Kathy Scott, to be able to say, your name is no longer forsaken. That, that chain has been broken. You will never know yourself by that name again. You, the, the fruit of that name will never be present in your story again. 
And to be able to declare that, that a life has been transformed and not have to wonder if God came through. But to know that he came through and be certain that he came through. Because we don't have to send them out if they, came, if they came in naked and they came in hungry, they came in with a need, we don't have to send them out with encouraging words and that same thing because, because as James is saying, what does that profit? And he goes on, even so faith, if it has not works, is dead being alone. Now he's comparing it to the verse right above it that says, I can say depart in peace, be you warmed and filled that that's, those statements are going to stand alone because they're going to profit absolutely nothing. Because the faith that he just speaks of, that transforming faith, that faith that says, I don't do anything, God does everything, that faith says that that person who came in in need can leave filled. Not with words of saying, but, but, but truly filled. Verse 18, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Again, I mean, he's getting down. This is flowing. So it's, I'm trying not to linger too long because we need, these verses need to connect. He doesn't say each one of these. Each one of these is building a story based on the scripture that just happened right before it. Yea, a man may say, thou hast faith, I have works. And then he says, show me your faith without works. And is that even possible? In my definition of faith, and I'm not asking you to agree with me, but in my definition of faith, that doesn't exist. I can call it faith, but if it produces nothing, I should rename it. Because faith, the, again, the minute I sit in that chair, that chair goes to work. I can't disconnect them. Personally, I can't disconnect them. Faith requires that there be an object or someone to do something outside of me that I cannot do for myself. I'm leaning on something, trusting something, relying on something, relying on someone to do something for me that I can't do. And it's by my action that I put, that I let them go to work on my behalf. It's not tricky. And he says, if somebody will show me, if they will show me their faith without, uh, without works, I will show you my faith by my works. He's saying, I can't, James is saying, I can't separate them. I'll show you my faith, but the only way I can show you what my faith looks like is by the outcome of what faith produces. There's going to be an outcome to faith. There's going to, there's going to be a walking, talking evidence of faith, something, because it would be interesting if I could figure out how to do it, to say I have faith in this chair and to actually demonstrate faith to this chair without, without sitting in the chair and letting you see me sit in it. Because how do you know I've got faith? Because I told you? And he said, well, show me. Show, show me that faith without works. So I could stand here all day long and say, I've got faith, I've got faith, I've got faith. And, and, and James is giving us, is setting us up. Show me you've got faith without works. I want to see this. I want to see what that really looks like. 
where you're standing still and you're putting, you're, you're, you know, because even the fact that I'm standing on something, I'm relying on something to hold me up. I'm putting faith in the, in the joints and my, in, in, in my muscles and my bones to do something for me. Show me, show me faith without works. And it's like, you can't do it. I'll show you my faith by my works. Because the minute I sit in this chair, you're going to know that I trusted this chair. You're going to know I believed in this chair. You're gonna, when, the minute that I show you by the evidence of my life, I put my faith in Jesus Christ to save me, that it's going to produce an evidence that's going to, that's going to show. My life will be transformed. I can't say anymore, I'm this old person that I used to be. The scripture says it way too many times. Old things have passed away. There is absolutely no justification anymore that I get the, the privilege or the right or the opportunity even to hang on to some former part of myself when God has shown me that that is not a part of who he is. I don't get to do that anymore. I don't get to get in an airplane and, and, and feel that thing taxi down the, down the runway and based on the weight of the plane, based on the wind, based on the tilt of the wing, when it gets a certain number of knots, that thing again leaves the law of gravity and is taken over by the law of aerodynamics. I don't get to live in between there somewhere. Because the minute that I start questioning the law of aerodynamics with any degree of question, the law of gravity is going to take over real fast. We don't get to live in, in, in the margin. So for you and I as believers, if I believe that old things have passed away and I'm trying to hang on to some former thing, some part of my life that I'm saying, God, and I know this isn't right, but I'm just going to hang on to it. Right. Something is missing in that story, and, and James is trying to point it out. Faith, by its very nature, will produce an outcome. And guess who the outcome's going to look like? Every single time. If I, pardon the repetition of this illustration, if I sit in this chair, what does, what does my body give, give evidence of? I'm sitting in the position of what? I'm sitting in this, in this angle. So what does my body tell? It tells the story of the chair. That faith that I put speaks of the testimony of the design of this chair. So what should my faith put on display? It should put on display the one in whom I have placed my faith. My life begins to demonstrate, put, put, become the walking evidence of him. I have had a question today. Somebody called me. And, and it was, it's a hard question. It is, I'm, I'm asking, I'm still, I don't know the answer. Still don't know the answer. But it's, it's, it's a hard question. Realizing that I can't mentally process through it, I'm going to have to find that answer by putting my faith, not in the intellect, but in the heart of God.
because I want the outcome. I want whatever I say in, 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 in addressing this question. I don't want it to reflect an intellectual position that I take up. I want it to express the heart of God. Because I don't, I don't want there to be an evidence of me in this. I don't want my faith in this hard question to be the best, I, to say this is the best I can come up with because what I would really like to be able to say when I finally answer this question for this person, as God gives me clarity to answer it, I want to be able to say this is God's heart on this matter because I want my answer to, to fit the contour of his heart. I want it to be the expression of him. Not me, not some theory, not some concept. I want my faith on this topic to put him on display, not me. I don't want to take up a position I've got to defend. I want to take up a position that he's told me so I can say, he said, this is, this is what he told me. Verse 19, you believe that there is one God, you do well. The devils also believe and tremble. But without no, no, O vain man, that faith without works is dead. Because, I mean, what's this most dynamic illustration that James could give? Do you believe there's one God? Yeah, you're doing well. Guess who, all, guess who also believes that and knows it? But is he going to put forth, by, by the fact that he knows it, is there going to be any works on his part that puts, the, puts God on display even though he knows what he knows? Absolutely not. So he's telling us our faith will put something on display that Satan's won't, because even, even though Satan believes in the, same, in, in the God that we're talking about. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he, when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? What? I mean, here again, this is a powerful illustration. Abraham is being obedient to an extreme I can't even imagine. Even if I got a note and the, and the, and the writing on the, on, the, on, the, on the paper was in flaming letters. I mean, I'm holding this thing. It's all written out in flames and, it's, and the paper's not being consumed. And it says, I want you to take Jay and I want you to get him to carry this wood and I want you to, when you get him there, I want you to, I want him to lay his life down on this altar because he's not a kid. Isaac was very likely 28, 29 years old when this occurred. I, I, I want you all to be in agreement with this so I, and I want you to lay Jay down on this altar and I want you to sacrifice him and it's written out here in this flaming letters. So I'm absolutely convinced that it's God and I'm, I'm, I'm going to have a hard time with this. So what is this proving that he's trying to prove by the use of Abraham? What does it mean that Abraham did it? It means that there was an evidence to his faith. 
It means that there was, a, there was an outcome to the faith that Abraham had in God and that what he heard was absolutely true. Why? Because he followed up on it. There was action associated with the faith that he had in God. He was obedient, trusting in all of that somehow that God was going to deliver, that God was going to do something miraculous because he had faith in God and that faith created a visible, tangible outcome. Verse 22, seest thou how faith wrought his works? He, uh, James is doing a beautiful job of laying this out. This is, this is a real good court case. This is the lawyer presenting a case saying, okay, now then we've talked about Abraham's faith, but how do we know Abraham had faith? That's, that's what the next one says. Do you see how his faith wrought his works? Do you see that there was a physical outcome of this, something you could tangibly see that speaks of Abraham's faith? And by works, was faith made perfect? Again, go back to James 1, 17. I, I have found such delight in the last few weeks in that verse that all good gifts and all perfect gifts comes down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variableness, in whom there is no turning. And to recognize again, I've never seen that before, good gift and perfect gift are two different words, two different Greek words. Again, the good gift is the gift I receive in its initial state. The perfecting of the gift is when I begin to give it away because what does that do? When I receive it, there may not be an evidence what happens the minute that I start giving away that which I've received? Now there's an evidence to it. It's the perfecting of the gift. It's the, the fact that I recognize that that which has been given to me was designed to be given to me, not for me to hold. That's why we can tell that there's not a stinginess in the Christian life because we're not a repository or a lake or a river by which we get the value of the water passing us recognizing that it was designed to go to someone else. And we get the blessing of knowing that that which I received goes and not only blesses me, but blesses someone else. So he, what profound questions that James is asking. And by works, was faith made perfect? What happened to Abraham? What happened to Isaac? What happened when he was obedient? What did God do? He stopped him in that last moment. And there was a ram that was struggling in a thicket and, he, and that, lamb was, that, that ram was freed and that became the sacrifice because what actually happened in that moment? God shows up. God in that moment of faith that where Abraham was trusting in that faith that God would do something, what happened? How did it become perfect? God did. And I can stop right there. God did. That's what happens in our life with faith. God did. I don't even have to say anything after it. He just shows up and he does. Because what would you expect I am to do? I am by the nature of I am will produce a fruit that only I am can produce. 
Verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled, which said Abraham believed God. And it was imputed, given to him, accounted. It was like it's an accounting term. It was given to him in, in accounting terms, handed over to him. It was imputed unto him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. I don't know when my day will come, and I'm not sure who I need to tell so that, so that, nah, I better, I don't want to tell anybody. I want to tell y'all, but don't tell anybody, all right? I would love to have on my tombstone. He was a friend of God. I'd like to have right underneath it because he was a child of God. Because the scripture says no longer slaves, but friends. No longer servants, but children. I'd like to be known by those terms that he spoke over us. I'd like to, I, I, what, a, what a powerful thing to say about Abraham, he was called the friend of God. Now, we know Abraham. We know there was a few messes in there. I don't think I would have survived if I would have, out of some concern, said, hey guys, this isn't my wife, this is my sister. I'm not sure I would have survived the beating <laughs> that Jan would have given me. Abraham did it, Isaac did it passing their wives off as their sisters, trying to save their lives. Abraham, when he was chosen, was the peddler of foreign gods. I mean, there was, there was just absolutely nothing about him that said that this was, the, the, he wasn't in seminary. He, you know, he, he wasn't this standout in the class. He was a very unlikely candidate. And God says, it's by you, Abraham, that all the world will be blessed. He had to be looking around saying, who in the world is God talking to? You study Abraham a little bit, understand who this character was. It's quite a choice. Why would God choose him? Oh, I know. Abraham believed God. Abraham put his faith in God so that God could show up and put himself on display and show himself to be strong to those whose hearts are perfect toward him. Verse 24, you see then how that by works a man is justified. Powerful, powerful word and not by faith only. So the faith he's describing, he asked that question earlier, can faith save? Well, that's why we can come back and say, I know the answer to that because I get to read down here what James is really asking. I get to read in context what James is really asking because to James, the answer to that question is actually no. Until you understand the kind of faith that James was talking about, the kind of faith that put God to work, the kind of faith that Abraham put on display, the belief that Abraham demonstrated that let God do something to let God show up so that the evidence became of God and not of Abraham. That faith, when we understand it in those terms, can save because he's saying, 
You see then how that by works a man is justified? Because if I say I have work, if I have faith and there is no works, then how, how can I be justified in anybody's eyes that that faith is real when there's no outcome to it? So it's by the very evidence of the faith that is demonstrated that, God, that I suddenly take on this shape and form so that I can put as Jesus was and be the expressed image of the Father so that when somebody looks at us, they see the Father, they see God working, they see the Holy Spirit present in us so that we look like Him. It's by that look that somebody knows I actually have faith because the only way to get that look through those kind of works is by the faith that was invisible. He's saying, do you understand it now that the way we stand justified to the world, the way we have this look, and remember that the salvation of our spirit is justification so that when we put our faith and we go across this line to leave beyond and go beyond who we are into the identity of who he is, he's going to produce something in us that makes us justified to the world because Jesus, I mean, we would, re would be reading a very different story today. If Jesus had come, lived a very good moral life and died on the cross for our sins, which would have been tremendous, and it would have qualified us to go to heaven someday because he paid the price for our sin. He rose again and returned to the Father. But so what in the world was all of the three years of supernatural about? What did each of those supernatural events and situations we get to read about in the Gospels, what did they do? They established that he was the evidence by faith in his father to do something through him that was tangibly and visibly putting on display, as he said, the father. Look at me and see him. Look at, look at me, not just in my physical form. Look at me. Watch these fish be turned in, in, into, um, you know, and, and be multiplied. Look at these loaves be increased. Look at what's left. Look at the leper's skin. Look at the lame man walking. Look at all the supernatural healing, the transformation where somebody wasn't left with the residue of a broken life. They didn't limp when they left. They didn't, there weren't sores. That, they didn't need glasses. They were transformed in those moments, healed because it was an evidence of Jesus and, and the fact that he had placed in his humanity, he said, without the Father, I can do nothing. If that's not an expression of faith, I don't know what is. By myself, nothing. With him, all things. All things. Jesus is saying, you want to know where I stand with the Father? Look at me. Look at all the things. And the Bible says that if, if, if everything was recorded, the volumes wouldn't hold it. Verse 25, he goes into another illustration. Likewise, also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? How do we know that Rahab, even in Hebrews, that Rahab was this, in this list of faith? How do we know that she was? How do we understand she had a connection with God? How do we know that she was beyond a harlot? Was this a harlot doing something kind? No, what James is saying, we know that she was a woman of faith. Something happened 
there was a transformation in her because we get to see the visible evidence of it and what God did in the protection of those because Rahab was obedient. And God did. So he gives another illustration in verse 26 where we'll end. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. That's more than an illustration. That's more than just a comparison that he's making. Because he's saying, and, and we need to kind of get the full context of this. I, I understand, you understand that there are many people walking around with functioning bodies. Functioning soul. They're functioning in the flesh. And their spirit is dead. So he's giving us a very, very clear picture of something. But he, when he comes back and says, so faith without works, so faith without works is dead also. He's saying, if I'm functioning in my body and my soul and I haven't learned how, or no, I haven't by faith stepped into the spirit life where the spirit's quickened in me, Ephesians chapter two. There's, if, if that spirit is, my spirit's still dead because of sin and trespasses and not quickened, then there will be no evidence in me of him. So, but what's the reverse of this? If I have found the exit ramp out of the flesh and into the spirit, so the spirit comes to life in me, what's he saying? What's the, what's the reverse of this? For, for the, he's saying if the body with the spirit is alive, then faith with works is the evidence of being alive. You see, the Christian world has lost this. And, and remember in context, because James has just said a few verses earlier about this characteristic of men, speaking generically of all of us, men and women. And we, and let me see if I can find, find the word. I can't remember what it is. Uh, It might have actually been at the end of chapter one. The, the, the context was that, that it, as, as, he, as, he, as he's referring to a man, he's not talking about knowing what the law is and only partially obeying it. It's like, I know that the traffic, I know that the speed limit is, 65, and most of the time I'll obey it, but some of the time I won't. That's not the description that, that James is using. The description that James is using is getting to pick and choose which laws I want to obey at all. Like I'm going to obey this one, but I'm not this one. I'm going to obey this one, but I'm not this one. And then he even brings it up again in what we studied last week, if a man say that, well, I don't kill, but I commit adultery, he says, you, you break the whole law. 
Well, if, if I decide within myself that I'm going to let God be put on display in certain parts of my life, but I'm going to hold some in reserve, I broke the whole law. I can't put God's heart on display that's behind that law if I hold part out because I don't care how kind you are. I don't, I don't care how many philanthropic deeds you do in a day. And you, and you get the praises of men and you, get the, and you get the recognition of your friends and then you're, you're, you're up on this platform getting this award for the recognition for all the good things that you do and this is consuming 99.9% of your, of your life. And when your wife is standing beside you and you step up for, uh, to get your reward and you turn back and you slap her because you don't want to follow that one, what did you just do? How much of your good deeds was erased? All of them. Because you don't get to pick and choose. And Paul is clearly saying, it's not the law, it's the heart behind the law. Because when you put God on display and you pick and choose those things that you want to do, then you put none of his heart on display. Because that one thing that you choose to do when you reach back and you slap her, and now, what, and now you just erased the fullness of the heart of God. And that one thing, when you decide, that one's not important to me. And people start turning and you start trying. Wait, wait, don't leave. I still did all those good things. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what image you're trying to build when you do something like that. That's what James is talking about. We don't have the privilege of saying, well, I don't kill. I might commit adultery, but I don't kill. You don't get 50% credit. Out of 10 commandments, you, you, don't, you keep nine and you break one. You don't get 90% credit because you've affected the entirety of the image of the heart of God. So we let God in all ways produce himself in us in large ways, small ways, how we handle business, what, you know, all these things. You know, it's a small thing for me. But when, when Jaron mows, I don't like not getting him paid quickly. I don't like being slow in, in doing those things. And, and it's the smallest of things. But something in me also knows that I'm putting on display in front of this young man the, the heart of God, the character of God, the nature of God. And I want him to know how valuable it is what he does. So I want him paid and I want him paid well. Because, because it's not me that I'm putting on display. It's not just this church I'm putting on display. It's the heart of God in the smallest details. I've got a, a, I've got a young man. I guess he's, he's got to still be young because he's. I, I taught him when he was in, uh, in elementary. And for, for absolutely no intentional purpose, but we were still back in the day when we put our offering in an envelope. And, and I'm glad we don't do some of these things anymore, but at the time we still wrote the amount on the outside so it could be tallied and put in a report and, hand, and all handed in. So 
he still tells me, and, and it had a, a very dynamic effect on him. He is very obedient in, in all things financial because he, and he'll tell you, I saw what you did. I saw what you did when you put your money in that envelope. He said, I saw what you gave. And he said, it touched me. It was just an amount of money. But he, understood, he saw something that was beyond me. And it was such a small thing. But it made such a deep impression. And he's a, he's a, he's a wonderful young man. Very dynamically leading his family, loving God. And I, I'm, not, I'm not taking any credit for that, but he will tell me from time to time, I saw you. I saw something. What, I, what do I want him to see? What did I want him to see? It, yeah, he wants him God. I don't want him to see a guy being generous. I want him to see a guy being obedient because that'll change your life. Smallest thing. I love, I used to sing it a lot and I really love the song, Thank you for giving to the Lord. Such a good song. You know, you don't know it, but that money that you gave that did this and did this, I'm the life that was saved. You didn't know you didn't know you did it, but I'm the life that was saved. Thank you for giving to the Lord. Our lives create such an invisible ripple when we're obedient. We don't know all the places where the outcome is actually seen. It's going to be an interesting day. That thought about, from that song, someday I'll get to heaven and this, there will be these people that say, did you know, did you know that what you said, did you know that that moment of obedience when God showed up, when God did, when, when, you, when you stood at that Taylor and Son store and you prayed for me? Did, did you know? No, I didn't have any idea. I just knew I was obedient. Well, that was the day my life was changed. That was the day I was transformed. That was the day. I don't get any credit. I don't get any glory. But I think it's going to be a fascinating day. I think it's going to be a remarkable day. Thanks for listening to this message. For more resources, visit sundownchurch.com.